0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato samasam buddhasa. Buddha ndamang sangam namasami. I wanted to invite everyone to dedicate today, dedicate every day to someone. I'm sure you can think of probably 20 people, 30 people, maybe 50 people you could dedicate your life to, your heart to, your love to. One of the things that touched me very early in my life was when I met a man in India. He was a sadhu, a renunciant, an alms mendicant, a beggar a beggar, and he had so much love he could share it with everyone, it was a love of the heart, and I think these dedications are important to make, even if you think you can't share your love, the love of your heart, indiscriminately with everyone, why not? So when I met this human being, I thought, I want to be like that. I want to be able to share the goodness in my heart with everyone. But I guess there wasn't a lot of goodness in there, because it felt hard to share it. I wanted the goodness for myself. I think it's good for us to look at that. How much do we want for ourselves? And it is good for us to want goodness for ourselves. But what, what is goodness? So we wish other beings who are sick, who are struggling, who are going down the wrong road. Like many young people, many people are going down a strange road, a road that doesn't lead to happiness neither for themselves nor for others. So these dedications are not some idle, passing thing that we're doing to get to the meat. But come on, let's get to the topic. This is the topic. This is really what's important is what are we dedicated to, and how do we share what we love, what we dedicate ourselves to, with those around us. And we've seen, by watching the statistics and learning from the medical officers and people who keep the data on COVID, we've we've learned that if we don't get healthy, if we don't stay healthy, then others will be affected. So if the whole world is not well, then we're not well. There's a corollary in there. There's an interdependence in there. We have to connect the dots more and more. So back in the day, when I didn't think I had enough goodness, I started on a path that led me this way. And I thought, I, I've got to do something. I have to do something drastic because it's, it's not happening. So, yeah, shaving the head and wearing the Buddha's robe. We try to imitate the people that we love and respect. And so when I learned about the Buddha's teachings, I wanted to imitate the Buddha his wisdom and his knowledge, his understanding and his ability to help people realize where is that peace in my heart, that peace and that sustainability from which I can draw on a wellspring of love that is inexhaustible. And it isn't a superficial love, like it's not about liking, but it's about supporting that which leads to the best in us. We may have physical health. Most of us have learned from life that physical health is not a given, and it's certainly impermanent. And we're always worried about our diet especially as we get older, and our diet becomes more and more restricted. As nuns, we we eat on a very restricted schedule, and now being older also, both of us have a lot of dietary concerns. So there's even less that we can receive when people bring. But we, we receive with gratitude. And this is what we can do when the diet of the mind is cared for, the diet of the mind. So the spiritual path is like a diet for the mind and that's why you're all here. What does that involve? What do you do to promote a good diet for your mental health? You know the Buddha's prescription is integrity we're worried about the physical integrity, how healthy are we mentally? We all think that we're fine, absolutely fine, until something happens and then we're not fine. So something is always happening in our lives because we are in touch with a lot of people and during a pandemic a lot of people have suffering. Terrible suffering. It's not just COVID. It's everything around being a human being, including getting born. By the way, we're in recovery from birth. We're recovering. Being born in this realm, on this planet, is a kind of recovering, figuring out, what am I doing here? What is the meaning? of this life. So, recovering is not to cover up our steps but it's to recover our mental well-being. And it takes a very long time before we recognize that our health of the mind is so important. Yesterday, I received a message from a woman living in Newfoundland, and a few months ago, she and her husband and her son went out on a coastal walk with their dog. And apparently the dog wandered off the path and slipped down towards the ocean. So their son, must be in his 20s, their son immediately ran down to try to help the dog. But he got stuck, and it was so slippery he couldn't get back to the path. His father went after him and tried to save him and could not, and he drowned in the ocean right in front of their eyes trying to rescue their puppy dog on a coastal walk one afternoon. Just like that. So the mother is bereft. We would be bereft to lose our loved one regardless in any way. And she wants to do a spiritual retreat. This is such a skillful thing to do because we don't really know our purpose in this life. We never know what we're going to get, even though we want to know, we desperately want to know. But one thing that we can know is that whatever good we have done will be for the good. And whatever things that were not skillful, we may have to repair that. This is the recovery. We're all recovering in one way or another. So. We cannot know the kamma of this young boy who sacrificed his life and who died trying to rescue another creature, a being, from harm, from death. So he gave up his life for that. Perhaps that was not his intention, but we do not know the reason that he came into this world. Perhaps the reason that he came was to send his mother on a spiritual quest the Buddha mentioned we're all like rivers flowing down a mountain some rivers flow only a small way like a trickle down the mountain some rivers flow a very long distance and reach the valley and irrigate there and some rivers flow right out to the sea big, mighty rivers. We as human beings question why good people, even babies, die. Why Why do innocent children, why do young people die? Why do terrible things happen to us? The Four Noble Truths of the Buddha's teaching time and again we don't really understand those truths. And one of the ways that we, in our monastic practice, dedicate our lives is to understanding those truths. And we do that not by indulging in the pleasures of the senses, but by giving up the world. What we discover is that all the enjoyments of the world and all the suffering of the world also are impermanent. They're conditioned and they do not last. But what we are discovering internally through a strong mental diet of not being distracted, of stilling the mind, of focusing our attention, is that we pull ourselves out of the tragedy that is going on around us by going to the very heart of the nature of the mind. We look for that. We investigate it. We bring ourselves close to it as much as we can by giving up the world. Now this mother, she already gave up the world. In her heart, her precious son died so tragically in front of her eyes, and she had no control. All of us are going to die in front of each other's eyes. Maybe not literally, physically, but in one way or another, it's coming. And we push it off as much as we can. But if we can learn to die before we die, then death is the least terrible thing in the world. It's just dropping the body. Because the true life that we can experience is not the loss of the body, but the loss of ignorance about what we are and what is the purpose of our journey on this earth. The loss of anger and greed, the loss of delusion about the way things are. So by investigating in our meditation practice more and more deeply, we dedicate ourselves to that. We have taken vows, many vows. I can tell you that the vows that I took have saved me so many times from delusion and from losing faith in this practice. What is the purpose of this container? If we didn't have in our life a container, like a retreat, why do people feel so happy when they go on retreat? Because they've entered a spiritual container which enables and allows us to spend more time with the pure light of the mind itself. And that pure light is ever-present, ever-transcendent. It is the most incorruptible joy that we can experience. It is harmless. It is pure beyond description. And if we bring that to flower within us, then there will be nothing in this world that we will fear. And I think this beautiful mother, I'd like to dedicate today's practice to her son and also to her, Lakmali. I wish her the vision of the Dhamma, the vision, the insight, the knowledge, the understanding, of this interior joy and splendor which every human being is capable of knowing, touching, embracing, and being empowered by. I wanted to share with you, this is from Anthony Mello. He was a, a great Christian monk and teacher he talks about a student who goes to the master for advice. And he says to the master, is there such a thing as one-minute wisdom? And the master says, there certainly is. But surely one minute is too brief. And the master says, it is 59 seconds too long. Well, the disciple was puzzled by this. Then the master said, How much time does it take to catch sight of the moon? He says to the master, Well then, why are there all these years of spiritual practice? And the master says, Seeing is done in a flash. But it takes a lifetime to open your eyes. So that's why we have so many years of spiritual practice. Because we can see the moon just like that. But it does, it takes one second, just one second to see. But opening our eyes, it takes a lifetime to really open our eyes. That's why, look, the world is blind. We have good glasses, but we're blind. We're blind to the truth. It's under our noses, but we're blind. We may be able to see, we think we can see, but what we're seeing is not what really is. We're only seeing through intellect, through concept, through ideas, through desire, through wanting, not through really... Seeing. Seeing with the heart. We've been blind too long. We need to open our eyes. But to open our eyes, that takes work and courage. But you don't have to shave your heads to see the truth. You just have to shave your hearts. And we come back To the sage in India, who had so much love, enough to spare for everyone. How much do we do for the sake of others? How much do we do for our own sake? We're not interested in statistics. I'm just trying to make a point about why... Birth is suffering. Birth itself is suffering. When you're born, you have to come through this narrow tunnel into the world, and you come in with a great cry, Oh no, I'm back. Not again. How many lifetimes does it take to get enlightened, to wake up? Well, actually, maybe it takes only a second to wake up, but in the process there must be maybe many, many lifetimes of working to clear away the dust, the cobwebs, the obstructions, the obstacles to waking up. We live in a beautiful container. There's a forest, there's the birds, the deer. There were six deer this morning looking at us inquisitively. What are you? We're dear. We are dear nuns. We're your friends. We will not harm you. But just beyond the boundary, there are shotguns firing. Really? Yeah. This morning, a lot of gunfire because it's Thanksgiving and people are killing the turkeys with their guns. And here, we've taken a vow not to kill any living creature. That's how the world is. We cannot control what other people do. We never can, even if we thought we could. Now we're beginning to see more and more that we cannot control anything, even our bodies. We look at the body as a teacher We look at COVID as a teacher. These bodies wilt. You can water them, prop them up, take care of them. But eventually, what are we trying to recover? So it goes. But to die with the mind that is free of the taints, of the stains, of greed of hatred, of delusion, of restlessness, of exhaustion, of hunger. Fundamentally, what are we hungering for? Lakmali, in her grief, realized that her hunger is so profound, nothing in this world will comfort her. She recognized that. That's a wonderful thing. And then to come to the practice and make effort to explore into the mind. There is this vast treasure in there. And we want to excavate it. We need to do an archaeological dig. And we want to sharpen the tools so that we can develop the dhamma eye that will help us to truly see. It's through our meditation practice we gain the power that this dhamma eye can give us. It's a special way of seeing. And few are they who can see, who learn to see in this way. We have to understand so much. We have to penetrate through to impermanence. That everything is impermanent. It's all fading away. And even if you get the very thing that you've always longed for, as soon as you have it, you want the next thing. Because it's not through any experience, relationship, any dependent thing that is conditioned by other conditioned things, experiences, knowledge... None of it lasts. We forget. We forget too soon. But there is one thing, there is the light of the mind that is unforgettable. We cannot forget it. Because if we learn to see that and to grow that so that it governs all forms of seeing, then we will never be blind. Our blindness will be undone. We will be liberated from blindness. That's the freedom that I want. And so, for me, this being alone in monasticism, it's the moan, and we are all essentially alone. We are born alone. We actually grow old alone. We we are sick alone. No one can take that away from us. We experience that, on our own. But we need that spiritual friendship. Otherwise, we cannot do this path. And to die alone with a mind that is liberated, to have our friends with us, even if at the very last minute the mind lets go because our friends are there encouraging us, loving us. The Buddha said that spiritual friendship is 100% of the path. If we can be real friends to each other on that level, then we encourage each other, ourselves and each other, on this path towards the freedom to see. I want to recommend practice every day People often tell me they have no time. But all of us have time to make time for the things that count. We use our vows to guide our life. So you could make a little promise to yourself, I will take care of my mind for half an hour before I get up and start my day. Ajahn Chah said, When he became a monk, he made a solemn vow. I dedicate my body and mind, my whole life, to the practice of the Buddha's teaching in its entirety. I will realize the truth in this lifetime. I will let go of everything and follow the teachings no matter how much suffering and difficulty I have to endure I will persevere otherwise there will be no end to my doubts I must make this life as even and continuous as a single day and night I will abandon attachments to mind and body and follow the Buddha's teachings until I know their truth for myself So I think for, for all of us human beings in this realm of so many kinds of pleasures to be had, we don't have enough renunciation. How do I know? Because I've been doing renunciation for a long time and I see how difficult it is to renounce. The other day, We went for our alms round in the Perth farmer's market, and we stood there with our bowls. On the way, we walked past a barber shop, and it said, haircut and beer, $35. So you can get your hair cut and drink a beer in the same go. This is what the world is offering more and more, like shortcuts to getting sense pleasure shortcut shortcut plus sense pleasure this is not the way to happiness but it's in our face all the time it's in the face so it's very hard to resist these things that are the temptations are all around us and yet the the best cut of all is, is what cuts. We have to give up something to get this. We have to maybe give up the haircut. Oh, there's two questions.
1: So I like the concept of dedication. Uh, so when you dedicate your day to a person, is it like you share the goodness of yourself? You express your gratitude? So i like to know how to do it in a practical
0: way. Thank you for your question. I think this is the most important question of all. Because, first of all, what does the mind do when you dedicate? When you dedicate, the mind stops thinking about itself We stop thinking about me and mine, and we think about you and other, someone else, someone that usually we start dedicating to someone we love, or someone we're very connected to. But in the end, for what I was doing was trying to learn how to dedicate to everyone. But that, that comes, and we have to practice that too. But what it does with the mind is it takes the mind out of our own wanting. It takes us away from greed, from wanting something to satisfy our own pleasure. It's a generosity. We want to give. It's like giving a gift a gift of our attention, a gift of our energy. It's a kindness. It's an energetic way of giving kindness into the world. We don't travel on that. It's not like getting in a plane and physically traveling. But as has been pointed out in studies, if you chant for someone and they're sick, even if they don't know that you're chanting for them, your chanting can help them to heal. So, This gesture of dedication is fundamental to helping us free our hearts from selfishness. And it has this positive benefit of bringing kindness, a kind energy, a generous energy, a selfless energy, a healing energy into this suffering world. And it may alleviate the suffering of that person, but it may not because of karmic reasons. But it's compassionate. And we need all the compassion we can get.
1: Thank you, aya Well when you were speaking a while ago of renunciation, I dedicated my practice to three of my very, very close relations. And letting go of that, and and letting go of self, was so sad. Letting go of just that, so much sadness in letting go, and uh, could you speak of that?
0: There is so much sadness in letting go, but the thing is that no one belongs to us anyway. We think we're letting go, but that's where we don't see. We're not in control of any of it. No one and nothing. We cannot control each other's lives, deaths, sickness, health, none of it. We own nothing. There is no one. There's no ownership. That's the fundamental truth. We can't even give each other that sight. We have to develop it, each, each of us, for ourselves. It's a DIY project from start to finish. Actually, you're doing something to create a greater depth of wisdom in yourself, and then you dedicate that to them. That's a gift. That energy we can share. We can share the blessing of our practice, the blessing of our life, the blessing of our freedom. And our freedom is only for the purpose of blessing others. That's what the Buddha did. He dedicated 45 years of his life to wandering around and teaching other people, he was already enlightened. He didn't have to do anything at all. So it's an example to us what we can do with our life. We can do so much. When the mind is free, then these pains even, the pains of the body, are bearable. At least we can die with a peaceful heart and If we die with the peaceful heart, the body pains are disappearing in that moment and the mind may light on total awakening in that dying moment. That's why it's really important to focus and direct ourselves well when we can, while we still have the wherewithal to do it.
1: All my life, going back to even my pre-teens, I have struggled with why good people have to die. And in my teens, I, and with the Christian tradition in which I was raised, I would wonder how could a loving God allow children to suffer? And then the anger dissipated when the great gift of Buddhism came into my life about 30 years ago. And I lost my anger for why good people die. But I still couldn't grasp the reason. And today, thank you, you've given me another way of looking at it. You said maybe that young man died so his mother could change possibly the trajectory of her life through going into a retreat and wherever it would take her. And so extrapolating, maybe that's, I now will be able to think about why young children die, that they weren't dying just to die. Their dying would be not to punish those who will miss them, but to offer a path through the suffering of those who miss them. So I guess my question is, anything you could say to help me on that path and
0: adding to my learning. Thank you so much. Yesterday when we were walking in Perth, I noticed that they had on the lampposts these memorials with photographs on every lamp. There were square posters with the pictures of fallen soldiers in different wars that had been fought by Canadian armies, and also peacekeeping missions where They were killed in their mission. And as I passed each one, I looked at their name. I read the name of the family that sponsored the poster. And I tried to bring a silent moment of gratitude in my heart for their life. And so remembering those who pass is a way also of reminding ourselves about courage and about compassion and about The gifts of each life, they're not forgotten. And it's said under each name, lest we forget. And I thought, how beautiful is that? But it's not with sadness, but with a feeling of uplift and life is precious. We have it now. But look, so many have died and so many have died so that we could have this now. And I'm remembering these beautiful beings and I'm feeling gratitude for their life. So that helps me walk more mindfully, more gratefully, more alive in this moment. It feeds my practice. I didn't even meet these people, but I did meet them. We meet. We don't know how we will meet, that's the mystery.